Luke chapter 24, let's begin in verse 13. Now behold, two of them were traveling that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was seven miles from Jerusalem. And they talked together of all things which had happened. So it was, while they conversed in reason, that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were restrained so that they did not know him. And he said to them, What kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? Then the one whose name was Cleopas answered and said to him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem and have not known the things which happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? So they said to him, The things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty indeed in word, before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we were hoping that he was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, today is the third day since these things happened. Yes, and certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us. When they did not find his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. Then he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Then they drew near to the village where they were going, and he indicated that he would have gone farther. But they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is far spent. And he went in to stay with them. Now it came to pass, as he sat at the table with them, that he took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they knew him. And he vanished from their sight. And they said to one another, Did not our heart burn within us while we talked with us, while he talked with us on the road and while he opened the scriptures to us? So they rose up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together saying, The Lord is risen indeed, and has appeared to Simon. And they told about the things that had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. Let's pray together. Father, we know that you have plans and intents for us that are beyond what we are even thinking right now, related to your verses here that we're looking at. We want your complete 100% work of your Holy Spirit in our lives We want these verses to be used, Lord, to make us better disciples for you. I just pray that you would increase and grow our faith and confidence in you and your word and the power of your resurrection and the power that we get to walk around with every day as we yield to you. So we pray, Lord, for a work of your spirit. We pray, Father, that you'd rest upon us. We pray that you would encourage your people, strengthen your people, comfort your people, as we celebrate how great you are. We thank you that you are victorious over death, hell, and the grave. And they no longer are enemies that will win in our lives. We commit it to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated.
I love these accounts of the resurrection. They're all so different. None of them are just exactly alike. And it's just just normal stuff that we've seen in the Gospels related to Jesus not handling himself, not dealing with people exactly the same way. God has complete freedom to work in such a way that's beyond what we expect. It keeps us dependent upon him. We don't want to serve and love a God that's um, predictable, do we? I wouldn't. I wouldn't want to be able to predict what God was going to do from one moment to the next in certain ways. In other ways, he's very predictable related to his faithfulness and fulfilling his character through our lives and all those things. But this account here, it's 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 an old friend of mine in that sense of just loving it and seeing just how Jesus deals with these to disciples and it's it's this account is amazing for many reasons um, beyond what we'll have time to cover today but one of the things that's missed about this account and maybe you're new to the bible and maybe you have never even read this part of the bible before or you haven't read it in a long time or whatever one of the things that's often missed about this account and i like to use the word account when i talk about things in the bible not stories because stories can be made up they can be Fairy tales, you know, like bedtime stories. A lot of those things aren't real. There are also could be true stories. But when you use the word account, it, it's, it, it speaks of a historicity. It speaks of, a, of something that's happened. And so I like to use the word account a lot. And when I've taught people to, how to teach the Bible, I've reminded them that it's really good to use the word account. And so here this account is, is is something that, again, there's a main part of this that is touched on often, but it's missed many times, but for sure it's not emphasized to the degree to which I believe is, is in the text for us to learn from and for the Holy Spirit to minister to us and really burn in our hearts the main lesson. And, and it's really connected to what this account really is, if you really look at it, it's a rebuke. That's really what it is. It's a rebuke, and it's a pretty significant rebuke. And what can be lost in, in how amazing it is and how he would appear to these two guys and how he would walk with them and how he went back and forth with them and how he eventually revealed himself to them, all of that can distract away from what this really, at its core, really is. It's a rebuke. It's a loving rebuke, but it's a, a rebuke. And so for us, we need to recognize that this rebuke is completely gracious because Jesus not only is truthful, but he's gracious. That's why John tells us by the Holy Spirit that Jesus is full of grace and truth. So he's, he's not going to rebuke how we may rebuke, where it's all truth and no grace and, and intermixed with it and interwoven within it. We are often rebuking people just straight truth and without any love or grace or we're harsh or whatever, but he doesn't do that. But why does he do that? Why does he rebuke these two disciples? I mean, they're reeling right now. They're without hope. They're distraught. They are trying to figure out what's happened in this whole situation here. Of all things, why would you have a rebuke coming? And why would Jesus himself come and rebuke them? I think the answer is, they should have known better. 
That's really the answer of why he rebukes them. They should have known better, and so should we, for the same reasons that they should have known better. So let's look at it. Let's look and begin in, 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 in the beginning of this whole account here. And in, in our account in verse 13, we're told about these two disciples, that they were followers of the Lord Jesus. They were followers. We're also told in verse 13 that they were traveling. And the mode of their travel was that they were walking. We're also told in verse 13 that they're traveling to a village called Emmaus. And it's revealed that the distance from Jerusalem to Emmaus was about seven miles or so. That would equate to about a two to three hour walk. I don't know when the last time you walked seven miles. It's been a while for me to walk seven miles in one shot. But that's what they're doing. They're walking. And so they're heading back to their village, Emmaus. That road is still there today, by the way, in Israel. You can walk on that road. We're also told that it's Sunday. That Passover has just ended the day before. We're also told um, that it's kind of later in the day, like in, kind of in the earlier afternoon at this point. It's been a long, hard few days for these <laughs> disciples and things that have happened in Jerusalem. And so there's been a lot that's already happened. The Lord Jesus has been mistreated. He's been tried. He's been wrongly convicted. He's been physically mistreated. He's been crucified. And he's been buried. And so these disciples here, they're, they're kind of distraught, they're, they're kind of um, anxious to say the least, and they begin their walk again around 2 and 3 in the afternoon, and we know that because in verse 29 we're told that they arrive in, uh, once they arrive in Emmaus we're told that the day is far spent. So because of the distance, because we know that it takes so long to walk a certain distance, because the day is far spent when they get there, we know that it's around the early afternoon. The road that they're walking along is an interesting one. It goes from uh, east to west, and it normally is the main road. Not, Emmaus isn't the main destination of that road. The main destination is Joppa, which is further west, right on the Mediterranean coast there. So they're traveling from east to west, and so because they're starting in the early afternoon, and then when they get there, the day is far spent, and they're walking from east to west, that means the sun is kind of setting in the direction that they're walking. Because Joppa... The ultimate destination of this road is right on the Mediterranean coast and where they're walking from, it's exactly almost due west there. So they're walking the same direction and so as it's been said, you know, the, as the sun is kind of setting, their hopes are kind of setting more and more and more as they're going because of what they've experienced and they don't have an answer to it and so they are losing hope at an increasing pace. We're told one of the disciples is named Cleopas. I don't know why. I don't know what it means. Um, we're not told the other person's name. Um, I'm sure that later on he would hope or wish that his name wasn't in there, <laughs> you know, because of what he says to Jesus and kind of like rebukes him. Haven't you heard what's going on? And like, oh, man, after everything that happens, you know, like, did you have to include my name in there, Luke? <laughs> you know, it's like, I don't, you could have just put some guy or, or whatever, or my nickname or whatever. Why would you have to put my, my real name? <laughs> now, notice in verses 14 and 15, we're told that they were doing something while they walked. It says, and they talked together all these things which had happened. So it was while they conversed in reason that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. So they were talking together about all the things that had happened. I'm sure that they were talking, they were trying to reason, they were trying to figure it out. It was try they were trying to make 
it was trying to they're trying to make sense of, of all of it and it's what's interesting is that when it says there that they that, that you know they reason and all that it has the idea that they seeked passionately the truth but they were limited because they could only talk to each other and so if you have limited knowledge and you only have one other person to talk to that has limited knowledge you're not going to come up to a lot of answers so but you're you're you have an opinion you know it's been said you know um two Jews, three opinions, you know, and it's true. You go to Israel today and they're, they just are having normal conversations with each other. You can't understand what they're saying, but it seems like they're about to start fighting because they're so passionate and so um, just aggressively communicating their position and all that. And you ask them, are you, are you okay? And they're like, yeah, we're fine. Why, why do you ask? You know, it's like, I thought you guys would start going to blows in a second here. I was about to intervene and, you know, be a UFC guy, you know, go, you know, and, and throw in the towel and all that. And, but that's just, that's just how they are. So they were reasoning. And so you can imagine them saying, are we missing something? Let's go over this again. Is there something that we're not seeing here? And, and that's when Jesus drew close to them and joined them. And we're told in verse 16, but their eyes were restrained, so they did not know him. So God actually affected their physical eyes so that they would not recognize who he was. But at the same time, if you look at the whole picture of scripture, Mark tells us that he appeared in another form. So there were two things that changed. Their eyes were changed by God himself in terms of being able to recognize him, but also Jesus changed form. And post-resurrection, in his resurrected bodies, he could change form, which is kind of amazing to think about. So they could not recognize who he was. Verse 17, and he said to them, what kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? I do want to say, first of all, he says that they're sad. He knows their hearts. He knows what's going on inside of them. He knows what goes on inside of our hearts. He didn't have to overhear them to know they were sad. He knew their hearts. And he said, what are you, what are you, what's going on? And, and I love this because the Lord Jesus just joins the spiritual dialogue. And he loves to do that. Even with believers. Sometimes you're talking about the things of the Lord. And you're talking about scripture. And it's so encouraging. And, and, and you realize that this has gone beyond just me and this person talking. The Holy Spirit has come in and and he's inter, he's he's intervening in this conversation and adding to it and and bringing us further than we normally would go because he's in the middle of this conversation he's the one that authored the bible that we're talking about he's god himself he's the one that that has done the work in us and made us born again and all those things but he it's great to see jesus doing this with these disciples that are so distraught and so discouraged right now Jesus knows when we're sad. Jesus knows when we're discouraged. And it matters to him. And I don't know if there's people here specifically that are down and feel dejected or you're, you're depressed or whatever. But Jesus cares just as much about what you feel and what you're going on as you're trying to make sense of something that you're in the middle of, that he's involved in, just like he was with all of this. He cares about those emotions. He cares about those feelings. It matters to him. And he'll come and encourage you as well. He also may bring a rebuke, a loving rebuke, that will help you. you see, 
people that are the most loving towards us and the most godly towards us, they tell us the truth and we need to hear it, but they do it in a very strategic, loving way. But they still tell us the truth. So we need to hear it sometimes, even when we're down. But we have to be very careful how we do it. Jesus never makes mistakes on how he does it because he is who he is. But for us, we're, we're a better learning curve. Verse 18, Then one whose name was Cleopas answered and said to him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? And have you not known the things which happened there in these days? Again, I'm sure he wanted later for his name to not be included in this. Um, I'm sure he said, can you believe I said that on the way back to Jerusalem? Can you believe I? And the other guy's like, my name's not going to be in that account. Yours is, I bet. You know, I don't know. But I can't imagine saying this to the Lord Jesus. But again, he would be gracious with me if, if, if I had said that. But I love his answer in verse 19. Look at me there. He says, and he said to them, what things? Now, Jesus knew, but he wants to draw out of them those things. He's very, very good at, at how he gets us to process what he wants us to, to process. Remember at the woman at the well with him in, in, in John chapter 4, he says, bring your husband. He already knew she didn't have a husband. But he wanted to draw out of her the fact that she's had all these relationships and she was trying to find fulfillment in those relationships and only until she came to him and got true fulfillment was she going to be satisfied. So he says, what things? So they said to him, the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our elders delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. But notice what it says in verse 21. But we were hoping, we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, today is the third day since these things happened. Yes, and certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us. When they did not find his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. It's so ironic that he's telling Jesus that no one has seen the body and Jesus is, has his body right in front of him. He's telling the body that no one has seen the body. It's hilarious to me, and, and, but they can't recognize it. He's keeping them from seeing himself, and he's changed form and all of that. And so, again, their hopes were dashed. Their expect expectations not met. They were thinking that this was it. And they were thinking that now, because of Jesus, this, this whole Roman bondage, this whole Roman occupation, this Roman rule over us as Israel, which had been for decades and decades, that this was coming to an end. That's when he says, that's, what, that's why he said we were hoping he was going to redeem Israel. Redeem, not salvation. They weren't thinking spiritual salvation. They were thinking a, a political savior. Even on the day of ascension, when Jesus is about to go up into heaven, 40 days after he rose from the dead, 40 days after this day, at that point, the disciples said to him, is this the time that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They still had an earthly hope, a political hope, and the whole entire time, Jesus was dealing with man's greatest issue and problem, and that is forgiveness. He says his name will be Jesus, for he will be 
for he will be their savior. He will, he will give them, he will save them from their sins. That was the greatest need, not a political king. Eventually, the Roman emperor, Constantine, would become a believer a couple centuries later. So they had their hopes dashed, thinking that he was some political leader that didn't turn out to be a political leader. So what's he going to do now? What's, how's Jesus going to reassure them? What's he going to say to them? What could he say to them that would actually help them understand and give, have their hope be placed in the right place to where their foundation is the right foundation and not some other thing? Well, I tell you what he's not going to do. He's not going, and this would have been the easiest thing for him to do, and that's for him to stop restraining their eyes, to change form back into something that they'd recognize and prove to them, and that would have been so easy for him, but that wouldn't have been the most loving thing for him to do. Why? Because he knows that he's not going to always be with them, and that's why intermittently he appears to them during those 40 days after his resurrection He's appearing to them, and he's not appearing to them. He's appearing to them, and he's not appearing to them. And what he's doing is, and it's very gracious of him, he's weaning themselves off of him. He didn't just raise from the dead and disappear, and they never saw him. He helps them, and he appears to them, and he ministers to them, and he does many other things. At one point, Paul tells us, inspired by the Spirit, that he appeared to over 500 people in one, at one place. So so, but he weans them off of himself, and it would have been so loving for him to do that in some ways, but it also wouldn't have been the, the best thing for them because they would have had their foundation still be on his physical body in the sense of them seeing his physical body alive. So he was going to do something even better. He's aiming at something far better, something that would serve them far beyond his physical presence with them. Something that they could have their souls anchored with forever, for the rest of their lives and ministries. What he wanted to anchor them in is confidence in the word of God. That's what he wanted to do. That was more loving than to just appear before him. He's going to do that when he breaks bread. But for, he, want, he t- wants them to learn this lesson first, and it shows his love for us that he does the best thing for us at all times. Agape love is doing what's best for the other person, even at our own expense. That's the quintessential definition of the kind of love that God has. And he calls us to have that love, to do what's best for the other person, even at our own expense. There's no greater definition of that. So he, he wants to have their confidence in God's word. So here's the rebuke in verse 25. Then he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Notice he didn't say slow of heart to believe all that the women have testified. He doesn't say that. He doesn't want their hope to be found in people and their testimony. That shouldn't be the basis upon which our faith is founded. It's supposed to be on his word, all that the prophets have spoken. He could have said, hey, why didn't you believe those women? Those are of your own company. You just told me that. They're trustworthy. Why didn't you believe them what they said? He doesn't do that. He goes a completely different direction because he knows that confidence in God's words is going to outlast every person's testimony on this world, in this world, and it's, it's, it's a more sure foundation. 
The resurrection of Christ is the foundation of our faith. But the contractor who laid it down is God, and he did it through predictive prophecy in the Old Testament. I'll say that again. The resurrection of Christ is the foundation of our faith, but the contractor, so to speak, who laid it down is God, and he did it through predictive prophecy in the Old Testament. And nobody can take that away from us. No amount of pseudoscience, no amount of evidence, no amount of anything that anyone could say to us, no one's testimony, no one's anything can change the fact that he has laid down that foundation of Christ's resurrection with his predictive prophecies in the Old Testament. And he goes into it there in verse 26. Notice he says, Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and enter into his glory? The passages they didn't believe were the passages on the suffering of the Messiah. And don't we do that? We just skip over the things. Ah, I don't want to really hear that, that there's suffering, there's tribulation. There's, we don't want to hear those things. We want to hear all the blessing scriptures. We want to hear all the scriptures that talk about prosperity. Turn on just about every preacher on TV. They're talking about the feel-good verses. They're not talking about the hard stuff. Pastor Chuck used to say to us, fellas, give them the meat and potatoes. Don't just give them the sweets. And if you teach the whole Bible, you will ensure that you'll give them everything that they need. Not just the sweets, not the things that they want to hear. This, this common belief in a coming political Messiah was something that God had to deal with in his scriptures ahead of time. And he did. Daniel talked about it. Daniel talked about that after so many days of years, that the Messiah, 483 days, like we talked about on Good Friday, after it was proclaimed to rebuild the, the temple and the wall and all of that, 483 years was Palm Sunday, fulfilled prophecy to the day, and it says, and after that, the Messiah would be cut off. They didn't claim those cut-off scriptures. They weren't, they weren't filling their promise cards, you know, on their table with all the promises of God. They weren't putting that scripture in there, that the Messiah is going to be cut off, because he can't be a political Messiah if he's cut off. So they couldn't reconcile these prophecies that had to do with him being the sacrificial lamb and being cut off, and the ones that are clearly there in the Old Testament about him ruling and reigning, and even some believe there were two messiahs because they couldn't reconcile those two beliefs. So they had selective memory issues here, and they had revisionist history going on. Verse 27, we're told, and beginning at Moses and all, notice the word all there, and all the prophets... He expounded to them in all, there's another word again, all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. He's getting their foundation in the right place. And he starts by, <laughs> at Moses there, and you know, he said at one point in his public ministry to the Pharisees, you search the scriptures for in them you think you have life, and these are they which testify of me. In Hebrews chapter 10 verse 7, we're told the volume of the book is written of him. So we began at Moses, and I wouldn't be surprised if he began in Genesis 3, God speaking to the serpent this, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Women don't have seed. They have an egg. They bring an egg to the equation, not seed. This is a prophecy, the very first prophecy related to 
the woman's offspring that would, that would um, crush the, the enemy. But it was a messianic prophecy. It was concerning Jesus. And it says that you, and, and he shall bruise your head. Talking about suffering. He's, he began this whole thing with, ought not the Christ had suffered? So he's no doubt talking with, probably beginning at the very uh, beginning there in, in, in Genesis that Moses wrote. And there's many, many, many other scriptures in that Moses uh, wrote by the Holy Spirit related to the coming Messiah. He talked about a prophet that was coming. But then David, I'm sure he talked about this in Psalm 22, verse 13 and 14. They gape at me with their mouths. This was written a thousand years before Christ. If you're a skeptic here, listen to this. They gape at me with their mouths like a raging and roaring lion. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me for dogs have surrounded me the congregation of the wicked has enclosed me they pierced my hands and my feet that's a that's a thousand that's 700 years before they invented crucifixion they pierced my hands and my feet i can count all my bones they look and stare at me they divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots again ought not the christ have suffered these things then all the way to the resurrection Psalm 16, verse 10, a verse that every Christian should memorize. It says, For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you let your Holy One see corruption. So obviously there's going to be a suffering servant Messiah that dies, or else you wouldn't be talking about the potential of corruption. But his body never saw corruption. It did not stay in that tomb long enough to, to, to suffer decay. Not just decay that's visible to the naked eye. I mean any decay. There was zero corruption. There was zero decay of that body. Isaiah wrote, 740 years before the birth of Christ, he is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. So not only would he suffer physically, but also he would suffer in a rejection sense too. And he keeps going. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. All talking about suffering. And by his stripes we are healed. Who is that talking about? Jews can't answer that. They say, well, it's Isaiah. It was, Isaiah is the suffering servant in Isaiah 53. And wrong answer. Don't have any even parting gifts for you. That's completely wrong. If you're older, you remember parting gifts. If you're young, you don't remember that. That's okay. There's grace for that. But the, there's, that's the wrong answer because in the beginning of Isaiah, when he stood and saw the Lord high and lifted up, who John says is, saw the Lord Jesus, he said, I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. So the other answer is it's not, it's not Isaiah. It's the, it's the Jewish people. They're, they've collectively suffered. They've, been, they've endured persecution. They've suffered all this time. No, Isaiah says, I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. You can't have the guilty die for the innocent. And both Isaiah and the, and the Jewish people and all of mankind were guilty. So it has to be Jesus. And then I'm sure that he talked about Daniel, where he speaks of the Messiah being cut off. And I'm sure he talked about Abraham, 
going to being ready to 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 sacrifice his son his one and only son i'm sure he spoke of the sin offerings and the burnt offerings and the wave offerings and the heave offerings which all pointed to jesus i'm sure he spoke about the passover lamb that was out spot without wrinkle and how they had to put the blood on the doorposts and the lentil when you do that you doorposts lentil you put the blood there that's the form of a cross I'm sure he spoke of when the Israelites camped out around the tabernacle, when they did it according to their families and how it all was arranged and everything. When you look at it and study it, you see that they all were in the shape of a cross surrounding that tabernacle. All the encampments of Israel in their tents. Beautiful. I mean, you could go on and on and on. It does say that he talked about all the scriptures and all. Can you imagine that? You're walking along going, oh, wow, that's right. Oh, man, oh, I forgot about that. Oh, yes, yeah, that's true. And you're going for miles and miles and miles of this. And he's talking, and you just think, like, how could I miss this? How could I not see this? I mean, can you imagine having a CD of that message? I mean, how much that would be worth? How much could you get on eBay? The Emmaus Road message there, highest bidder. Wow, you would just get, and then he wouldn't let you have, he'd make you give that all the way, all that to the poor or whatever. Um, but just can you imagine that conversation now look at verse 28 then they drew near to the village so this is two to three hours later of hearing this where they were going and he indicated that he would have gone farther but they constrained him saying abide with us for it is toward evening and the day is far spent and he went in to stay with them one of the things I like is that he didn't force himself he didn't come and say when they're getting ready to go and just walk with them knowing that where they're going. And I'm sure they mentioned maybe that they were going to Emmaus during those hours of talking. I don't know, maybe not. But you would think that he would just start going along that direction. Because I'm sure there was a fork in the road and to go left was probably Emmaus. And to keep going straight, you'd go on to Joppa. But he doesn't, he doesn't just start going with them even though he wants to go with them. He knows that they need him to go with them, but he waits to be invited. And that's an important thing that we have to recognize related to unbelievers and the gospel. It's an important thing to remember related to our own lives. He will not force himself on us. He's waiting there for us. He wants to spend more time with us every single day. He wants to spend more time with us, quality and quantity. He wants to spend that time with us. And how would you like it if someone told you, your spouse perhaps or someone else say, you know, I just need to increase my discipline to, to be able to spend time with you. That would, that, that would be hard for us to hear. Now he's gracious and he knows we have a sinful nature and our sinful nature is the thing that's getting in the way of us spending time with him. And he's, he's honest with us and he says that the spirit is willing but the flesh is weak. He knows we have this dual nature. Now when we get our new bodies, we won't have a sin nature. So we won't have that battle. And we can't wait for that to happen. And when that happens, we're going to be rejoice and all of that. But he doesn't force himself on people. He's a gentleman. And so he asks these questions. He draws out from them. He's sharing with them. And then when it's time to go, he starts going this one direction and waits for them to invite him. He cooperates with that. And I'm, so, I'm sure they're so thankful they did that. Can you imagine thinking about if you didn't do that? Oh, man. Now verse 30 says, Now it came to pass, as he sat at the table with them, that he took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them. 
So he takes the position of a host. Now, this would be something that he wouldn't take for himself, that you would never, anyone would take for himself. You would allow the, it's like a guest of honor type thing in that culture. So they said, hey, oh, yeah, I want you to do this. You're the, our guest. I want you to, to, to bless this and all of that. And so he, he reveals himself in this way. And, and I don't believe it's because he, does it, he breaks bread a certain way, like a certain technique, to all of a sudden they go, that's the Lord Jesus. I don't think that that happens at all. It's purposeful from his end that he makes it to where they can see, understand him or see him, perceive him, and he changes form into a form where they recognize. And it says there in verse 31, Then their eyes were opened, so that's something that God was doing, and they knew him, and he vanished from their sight. It doesn't say how long it took him to vanish. It's one of the things I've always wondered. Did you just sit there and just say, it's me, I'm alive, encourage them, say, speak for a while? Or was it just as soon as they recognized him, he was gone? I think we normally think that's probably what happened. I don't know. But it says he vanished from their sight. So they said to one another, did not our heart burn within us while we talked with us, while he talked with us on the road and while he opened the scriptures to us? Now this is a searching question. Why did their hearts burn? I think the most logical answer or whatever, because they were convicted. And I think they were convicted because they knew these scriptures. See, he's holding them into account and rebuking them. He never would have done that if they had never read these scriptures or didn't know these scriptures before. And never saw them. He says, he starts out the whole thing, oh, slow of heart to believe, right? So he's already expecting them to believe because of what the scriptures have said. So they obviously already knew these scriptures because they were Jewish. They were raised in in going to Sabbath school and going to all these trainings and as a little children, little uh, children, they were learning these things. So they knew all this stuff. And so their hearts burned because they realized, I knew this and I didn't believe it and I didn't see it. And so you can imagine their response to that going, man, why didn't we believe all the scriptures? We should have known this. We should have seen this. Now look what they do now. Talk about burning calories. Verse 33, so they rose up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem, just another little seven-mile jaunt, um, and found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together. It was so important that they shared this, it could not wait. And remember, this is, this is night now, so now you're, you're elevating the level of danger because you don't usually wouldn't travel a lot at night in those days. So they're, so they're taking a risk to do this. They're also probably tired, and they just eaten, so they have, I don't know, carb overload, or, I mean, maybe you don't get carb overload when you have unleavened bread, I, I have no idea, but they, you know, just eaten, how many of you want to go on a seven-mile walk after dinner, you know what I mean? So they're just eating and they, they eaten, and they get there, and they say in verse 34, the Lord is risen indeed and appeared to Simon, that's what they say to them, and they told about, these two men told the, about the things that had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. Interesting. And then it should say, Cleopas tried to get his name changed to Barney, but they was too embarrassed to, I don't know, he doesn't, shouldn't say that. But I would not want my name in there. It's maybe just my pride or whatever. So, the risen Christ we celebrate today. The Lord has demonstrated his victory over death, hell, and the grave, and it's because of his victorious 
conquering of those things that we get to share in that victory. The resurrection, as it's been said, is the Father's amen to the cross. It basically validates everything Jesus said. You can say all these all the things you want. You can say you're the truth, the way, the truth, and the life. You can say that you're the way. You can say that, you know, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And all those things, you can, you can do the miracles, you can, all that stuff. But if you say you're going you're gonna to raise yourself from the dead, which he said in John chapter 2, verses 19 through 21, destroy this temple in three days, I'll raise it up. If you say that, it better be true. And if you don't, or you're not, the resurrection doesn't happen, then as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, we are like all men most miserable. Our faith is futile and we are still in our sins. That's what Paul said if he didn't rise from the dead. But he did rise from the dead. It's a great day of victory because the resurrection occurred. Now we are saved and have victory over the penalty of sin. We have victory over the power of sin. And someday we'll be victorious over the very presence of sin. All because Jesus rose from the dead. But that hope has to have correct underpinnings. We are not ultimately called to believe the resurrection because of eyewitness testimony. We are called to believe the historical fact of the resurrection because the scriptures predicted to a T his life, death, his resurrection hundreds and hundreds of years in advance and only God can do that. He doesn't want us to be like those two disciples and be foolish and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. He wants us to have an increasing confidence in what the prophets have spoken and what the apostles have spoken and because of experiential knowledge of the resurrection. Because, see, there's a, there's a relationship that we have with God related to his resurrection that Paul spoke about. And I want us to close by turning quickly to Philippians chapter 3. Heard some zippers. That means you thought we were done. Bible covers heard those zips never know never know there might be a couple scriptures here and there at the end if you zipped your bible cover there's no condemnation trust me just teasing you philippians chapter 3 i want to begin reading in verse 8 yet indeed i also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of christ jesus my lord for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ, and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. Let's just stop here for a second. The only righteousness that we can have that's sufficient is the righteousness that comes by faith. The law of Moses, as great as it was, all 613 laws in the law of Moses As great as that was, it could not save anybody. All it could show is that we needed a Savior. That's all the intent was for it, is to show the Jews they needed a Messiah, they needed a Savior. Can't be saved by any law, even the law of Moses. There's a righteousness that has to come by faith in Christ alone. Verse 10. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Now the word know there in verse 10 is our word gnosko in Greek. And it means knowledge by experience. The Jews valued experience as knowledge. The Greeks are the ones that had intellectual type idea of knowledge. But the Jews never had that. The Jews had 
the foundation of knowing things by experience. And that's what that word means. When Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free, it's gnosko. You shall know the truth by experience and the truth shall set you free. That's the word he uses here. That I may know by experience him and know by experience the power of his resurrection. Now, this is in... This is in the book of Philippians. Paul's in prison. It's towards the end of his life. He's going to be released and be put in prison one other time, and he's not going to make it out of that. He's the end of his life. This is 30, 40 years. This is 64 AD, somewhere in there. This is 30 years later after his conversion, and he's talking about knowing by experience the power of his resurrection. That means, and that tells us, and that reveals to us that we have an ongoing relationship with Christ in the sense of many ways, or many types of things, but one of those senses is to know the power, ongoing, experientially, the power of his resurrection. That's living the supernatural life. That's living a life that makes no sense in the natural. and, And why do we need that? We need that for the signs that he wants to do through us when we preach the gospel and he wants signs following the gospel. You may be in another country someday preaching the gospel to people who have never heard the gospel and he uses you to perform a miracle. We need to know that. That's the power of his resurrection. But also just in our own life related to holiness. What causes us to live a holy life when we ask for that power and he gives us the fruit of the spirit and we have self-control, that's the power of the resurrection. That's, that's supernatural power. And we know by experience in an increasing way that power as we walk closer and closer with Christ. And then notice what he says. He says, and the fellowship of his sufferings. You're not hearing a lot of TV preachers talk about the fellowship of his sufferings. Go try to find it. You're not going to be able to find it. It's going to be very difficult for you to find someone talking about the fellowship of his sufferings, trials and tribulations on TV. It doesn't sell. It doesn't get the crowds. It doesn't get the donations. Being comforted in his death, verse 11, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. And he's saying here, he's not saying I'm striving to have the resurrection of the dead happen or be raised from the dead and it's my own works that does it. He's, he's talking about how inescapable the idea is and how it's so hard to grasp the the, the possibility of that and how God could do it and how he's going to work it all out. If by any means is talking about how, however God chooses to do it, or I can't imagine it, but he's going to do it somehow. But by any means, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And that's what's going to happen. Because of Christ's resurrection, we're going to be raised. Over and over again, we're told in Scripture, because he was, he was raised from the dead. And it talks about him being the first fruits from among the dead. He was the first. Remember, there was other people that were raised from the dead before Christ's ministry. In the Old Testament, people were raised from the dead. In Christ's public ministry, he raised people from the dead. In the book of Acts, Peter, Paul, they raised people from the dead. That's different than a glorified body. Christ is the first one that had a glorified body. We're going to have glorified body because bodies because those bodies that he raised from that they raised from the dead they died again but glorified bodies never die again so that's what we're going to attain because of God's grace we are going to attain the resurrection from the dead we're going to be raised to life and we're going to live forever with him in that body with a supernatural capacity to live in that dimension and to please God in the way that our hearts and our spirits want to but our flesh is unable to perform on a consistent basis
Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for all that we have to celebrate today. Thank you, Jesus, that you rose from the dead. We recognize that you were victorious. We're so grateful for that, Lord. Thank you, Lord, that you've increased our faith in you. and You've increased our faith in your word. You've given us more confidence to go out and be the disciples you've called us to be. And I pray that this body here, as we grow numerically and spiritually, we would more and more in an increasing way have confidence and know by, know by experience the power of your resurrection. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.